Uh, for those of you who have prayed for my daughter, I was mentioning that she just about died a couple times in the doctor's office. On uh, one occasion, uh, she was actually there, which obviously is providence of God. Uh, when she fainted and they couldn't find any blood pressure at all, they put her on blood pressure medication. And after an hour on blood pressure medication, her blood pressure was 60 over 30. So she's uh, been in pretty tough uh, shape. So we went to Germany. Very concerned for our daughter because she hadn't been sleeping. She was afraid to go to sleep at night for fear that she would die because of all of this sort of thing. Uh, and as we got to Germany, she is doing better. She's doing better every day. Joan had a chance to visit with her yesterday, and she's just that much better now a week after we have been there. Uh, I should have known this. Anytime mom faces something this tragic, uh, it's going to have a huge impact on the rest of the family. Uh, our granddaughter, Abby, will be six this month, and uh, Sam will be four. And this has uh, been real hard on them. It's obvious in terms of acting out behavior and whatnot that's uh, hard for us as grandparents to see. Uh, Mark, our son-in-law, also has been struggling with depression over what's been happening in his family. So uh, keep praying. We appreciate your prayers. We're seeing progress uh, every day. Well, we come today to a portion of the book of Joshua uh, that most preachers dread. And I have to confess, I've been dreading this. I know you've heard me as we've gone through this Joshua series every week. It's, well, this is the most important passage. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, for those of you familiar with that name, has a commentary in the book of Joshua. Uh, he covers these chapters in one paragraph. <clears throat> um, some of you know the name Arkent Hughes, expositor extraordinaire from Wheaton College. He skips these chapters altogether in his commentary on the book of Joshua, but we have said throughout this series that I am convinced that the Word of God is true and what the Bible tells us, so that is all Scripture is God-breathed, uh, and it is useful uh, for teaching, for correction, for rebuking, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there has to be some reason why these chapters are included in the book of Joshua. They can't just be meaningless verses that have no uh, bearing for uh, any of us. Uh, so uh, with that, I've uh, tried to look a little more deeply and carefully at what's going on. And as best I can tell, uh, these chapters are about families. They're about uh, families inheriting uh, from uh, their heirs. Uh, from a spiritual perspective, they're about the promises of God. God made a promise to Abraham that ultimately was fulfilled in Abraham's sons. And these are more sons that are claiming the promises of Abraham. So it's about uh, the promises of Abraham. As I was thinking about this, it made me think about my own family tree. As many of you know, uh, I'm one of many George Kenworthys. My dad was George Kenworthy. My grandfather is George Kenworthy. And I've got pictures of the five George Kenworthys that precede uh, my father in my home. My son is George Kenworthy. Uh, should God give uh, George and Terry a son, they're going to name him Alice. Uh, I uh, did a Google search, uh, entered the name George Kenworthy uh, pre-Christmas, and found out there was a George Kenworthy in the 1800s who was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in England. So uh, for years I've been led to believe that the Kenworthys are from Wales, and we made a trip to Wales. Some of you heard me talk about this in the past. Looking for the Kenworthy Castle in Wales. Um, I uh, did a little more thorough search, and as you can see on the overhead, about 200 Kenworthys come from Liverpool, England, according to U.S. Uh, immigration statistics. So the likelihood is 
I'm English, not Welsh, for I know you don't care, but I care. As you think about family trees, I came across this poem this last week uh, that helps set the background for, I think, what we're going to see in uh, Joshua 15 through 19, and maybe a sobering reminder to me not to dig too deeply into my own family tree. I climbed my family tree and found it was not worth the climb, and so I scampered down, convinced it was a waste of time. Some branches of my tree I found were rotten to the core. And all the tree was full of sap and hung with nuts galore. I used to brag of my kinfolk before I made the climb, but truth compels me not to tell of those not worth a dime. And I beg friends who boast aloud of their ancestors great to climb their family tree and learn of those who weren't so straight. I've learned what family trees are like. I've seen them growing round. They're like a tater vine, because the best are underground. (laughs) Now that uh, poem describes what we're about to see in these chapters in Joshua. Now on the surface, we might think, as we're dealing with a portion of Scripture, that basically describes how the nine and a half tribes on the west side of Jordan got their property. We would assume this is all about real estate. We would assume we're going to get a lot of boundary designations. We're going to read about cities, and there's a lot of that. We would assume that, like any will and testament, uh, that we would do this logically. Uh, Now, uh, many of you perhaps have written your wills, and if uh, you have something in your wills for your children, chances are what you have done is that you've named the oldest child first, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next, because if we're going to write our last will and testament, We don't, in that document, want to give the impression we're playing favorites with our children, do we? So, I mean, that's how you do it. Already, as you look at this section of the book of Joshua, I can make one statement. God doesn't care about that one bit. Because although logically you would say uh, that if this is the dividing of the property to the 12 tribes, well, you start with the oldest son and then the next son and then the next son and then the next. And then you give the, the baby the, you know, the last designation. That's how you do it. Well, that's not what's happening in these verses at all. Judah is the first uh, to receive the inheritance. And we can say, well, Judah wasn't the oldest son, but already some of you are bright enough to know, well, Judah is the tribe from which Jesus Christ comes. So maybe already God is playing some favorites. And then after that, uh, it's the sons of Joseph that are next, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, they weren't even actual sons of Jacob. They were grandsons of Jacob. But when Levi was not going to inherit land, uh, we needed to, if we're going to keep the 12 number, we needed to somehow increase that number by one. And so the two sons of Joseph... Uh, became uh, heirs. But what's surprising here is that they are listed second. Now, again, it would appear that God is playing uh, favorites in one sense because we know uh, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. He was the one who is a type of Christ in the Genesis story. And if God already is not going to be bothered by worrying about what people are going to think, if this is uh, according to tradition and the way we're supposed to do last will and testaments, he gets to play favorites. Well, I think we can understand why Joseph's sons would be Named next. Now, again, if you've uh, read this section and most of us, including me, haven't spent a lot of time with it, you might think, well, all right, God's just going to name these sons off in whatever fashion he does. Well, he names the first three, uh, those that seem to have favored status. And then as we look at the, the last ones, the remaining seven, 
Now he doesn't even follow the procedure that he followed before. And you say, well, wait a minute, time out, God. This is, you're not doing this right. Well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. Now with the remaining seven, they cast lots. Uh, and you say, well, what's that about? Well, God can control the lot. He can still do the selecting through the lot. But that's what they do. For the remaining seven, there's the casting of lots to see who gets what piece of property. Uh, the uh, first one is Benjamin, you know, the other uh, brother of Joseph. And you say, well, that kind of makes sense. You know, Rachel was a favorite daughter. And maybe we're still doing some sort of favoritism thing. And then it's Simeon. And they go through the rest of them. And the last one is Dan. Dan was not the youngest son, wasn't the baby in the family. In a little bit, I'll be making some observations from the perspective of God's providence as to why Dan is listed last. So just by a way of overview, there seem to be some curious things that are happening in this uh, section that's beyond territory divisions. And it begs the question, what really is going on? The theme verse for the book of Joshua, I have said on a number of occasions, is Joshua 21 and verse 45. Uh, that is a conclusion of a major portion of the book of Joshua. Uh, chapters 22, 23, and 24 are three convocations that end the book as people are now making their pledges about what they're going to do. But the story ends with chapter 21. And verse 45 is a summary verse detailing what we've seen through the first 21 chapters of the book of Joshua. And what we read in Joshua 21:45 is this that every one of the promises of God came to pass, not one of them failed. So what's Joshua about? Well, the book of Joshua is about claiming the promise of God, the promise of this inheritance, the, the land, and all the blessings that come with it. That's what Joshua's about. Now, if I were to say, having spent a fair amount of time, I've had a month to preach this message, so look out. Uh, if I were to say, what is the theme verse of, of chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, where all this property is being divided. Well, in my mind, there is no question but that the theme verse is Joshua chapter 18 and verse 3. Uh, if you look at Joshua chapter 18 and verse 3, in this section where we're reading about the disbursement of the property, we read this, Joshua speaking to the people, How long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord the God of your fathers have given you. You see what's happening here? The people of the promise of God. Uh, they have conquered the, the Canaanites. The land is laying before them. Here are these promises that God has given them that are now fulfilled. And the people are sitting on their hands, not doing anything. So Joshua says, we're going to get going. You're going to get going. You've got these promises, but you've got to lay claim to them. And just as a uh, commentary, as you read this section uh, and as you skip ahead to the next book, the book of Judges, you will find out over and over again, we will learn that the, these people of Israel who had the promise of God, you can drive out the Canaanites, you can claim the land, you can receive the benefits of the promise. You will see regularly, we are told, that they did not, they would not, they could not drive out the ites, and therefore they continue to suffer on into the days of the Judges. Uh, so just uh, by way of overview, um, here Joshua is trying to get them moving. And if we look at the rest of Joshua, the rest of Judges, they never really move all that much. They have the promise that has been delivered and they don't claim it, for the most part. There are exceptions. That's led one of my uh, commentators to make this uh, uh, observation about uh, Joshua 18 and verse 3. He says this, this is uh, Dale Rolf Davis. Verse 3 reflects the tension 
of much believing experience, whether ancient Israel or modern Christianity. Yahweh is promised land, yet it must be possessed. It is Yahweh's gift, yet that doesn't cancel human responsibility. Yahweh's promises are intended not as sedatives, but as stimulants. God doesn't want us to swallow his promises, but to seize them, such as the apostles' theologic in 2 Peter 1.3, where Peter says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's granted to us precious and magnificent promises, he says. Now, that's for New Testament Christians. And then he concludes, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And then he goes on and on with all these extra things we need to add as we are doing what we need to do to claim the promises that God has given to us. And I think we all know this on a practical level. Jesus Christ says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And then he gives this promise, and I will give you rest. You think they're Christians who hear the promise but don't claim it, don't receive it? I know there are. We got the promise of God. If you pray anything in faith, believing, I will give it to you. You think there are Christians who know we've got that promise in the word and can say, well, I don't. I, have, I hear the words, but I have no idea what that promise means. I mean, there are plenty of promises like that that were given throughout Scripture in the New Testament where Peter is saying, you got the promises. But the promises are like the Christmas presents underneath the tree. Until you go and you claim those promises, you still have nothing. And that's the challenge for uh, these, uh, these people. What's, that's led me to ask some questions about families. Since this is all about families in uh, Joshua, if it is ever families, we want to claim the promises of God. Are there any lessons we can learn uh, from these tribes uh, in the book of Joshua about how families claim the promises of God? Now, there are many more. There are too many chapters, too much uh, to do. But I, I came up with three lessons we can learn uh, from these chapters about how we can avoid being lax in claiming the promises of God. Now, first, thinking of Judah, this, uh, this favorite uh, tribe. If you wish for your family to experience the blessing of God, you must be broken. Now, the question I have raised uh, myself as I've gone through this study is knowing this is our last will and testament, why would Judah be listed first? Well, as I said, the easy answer is, say, well, Jesus comes from Judah. Well, that begs another question. Why does Jesus come from the tribe of Judah? So go back with me to uh, the book of Genesis for a moment. Some of you have heard me talk about some of these things in the past, but I want to go through this rather quickly and offer an explanation as to why God decided that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 37, 1 through 36, we find out that Judah... Seeking to make a profit suggests that Joseph, the good brother, is sold into slavery. Obviously not a good moment for Judah. In chapter 38, uh, Judah, seeking to satisfy his lust, had relations with his daughter-in-law, claiming, well, he only thought she was a harlot, didn't know it was my daughter-in-law. Like, that makes it better. You're having sex with a harlot, not my daughter-in-law. But another uh, moment that is rather sordid uh, for Judah. Chapter 39, Joseph, by contrast, is tempted to lust, and he remains pure, which is a reason why many people look at the Joseph story and see Joseph as a type of Christ, because throughout he has such a godly attitude. He's a model for all of us, and so many call the section that uh, we see here the Joseph story for that very reason. Chapter 40 through 41, 
Joseph interprets dreams and he is blessed. This is now while he's in prison. Now, remember earlier he was a dreamer too. He had this dream that God was going to use him uh, to help his family. And his family's bowing before him in the, in the dream and so on. And that's a day that one day is going to be filled. I got this dream that I'm going to be in a special place for this family. And the family basically said, you're nuts. And as a result of that, his brothers sold him out and they threw him into a, a pit and left him to die. And then ultimately sold him to slave traders. And then he was in prison for a number of years. So Joseph is always the dreamer and he's a dreamer here. The climax to the story comes in chapters 42 through 45. When Joseph's brothers, including Joseph, come to Egypt to get some grain. And in verses 44, 16, it's Judah who makes this statement. With everything we've seen about this man before, he's, he's into sex, he's into money, he's into himself. Uh, he has no notion about really wanting to live for God. Now all of a sudden, in 44, 16, he says this. He says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants, including this one. And then in 44, 32... Finding out uh, that Joseph, and he doesn't know Joseph is his brother at this point. Joseph is demanding the life of his younger brother, Benjamin. It is Judah that steps up and says, I am the one that deserves to die for my sin. Take me in exchange for my brother. And I don't know if that sounds like any story uh, that you know, like maybe a son of God dying for the sake of men and women everywhere. But that was a Christ-like act of self-sacrifice, of a man who became broken in his sin and realized uh, that he was the one that was responsible for all this mess that was going on in his family. I am the one that did it. Take me. I deserve to die. Well, Joseph reveals who he is. I'm your brother. Everybody cries and, you know, the story ends uh, happily. But then we get the blessings that are meted out. And if you've been following the story of Joseph... I mean, you say to yourself, well, now, if I were God and I wanted to pick a tribe from whom I would want Messiah to come, who would you pick? I know who I'd pick. I'd pick Joseph, the pure son, the godly son, the son who had a dream and never gave up on that dream, the son who sacrificed and being in a pit and a prison for years and then at the end can say, well, God, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's, that's Messiah-like. I would have Messiah come from him. But Messiah comes from Judah. And could it be uh, that God is looking at this one who was broken in his sin and saying, well, that's what I want my people to get. That's what I want families to get. I want families to recognize that step one to recognizing the promise of God for you is becoming like Judah. Not looking at families around and say, well, what's in it for me? I, you know, I sell out this one, sell out that one. It's all about sex. It's about power. It's about money. No, it's about brokenness before God. It's not playing the blame shame game anymore and blaming brothers and blaming sisters and blaming mothers and blaming fathers for all of our problems. No, it's saying, I am the one who needs salvation for my sin. Well, that's where Judah was. And interestingly enough, God says, I'm going to give my greatest blessing to this family. Now, that's highly suggested to me. One, one other comment before we leave the story of, of Judah. Just an uh, observation. Judah deals with his sin. Uh, it's a contrast to uh, uh, other sin accounts that we read in the book of Genesis. Ham was guilty of sexual sin. And the descendants of that union became the Canaanites, the Philistines, and the Assyrians, the enemies of God. 
Lot was guilty of sexual sin. Uh, and the uh, descendants of that union became the Moabites and the Ammonites, enemies of the people of God. Uh, Esau, against the recommendation of his mom and dad, went out and married a Hittite woman, one of these ites that's supposed to be eliminated from the line. He married one of them. The ending result was the descendants of that union became the Edomites, enemies of God. And just about the time we're ready to say, well, you better not ever sin, particularly with any kind of sexual sort of thing, because you know, there's no forgiveness for any of us as sinners who've ever done anything like that. You have Judah, who's having sex with his daughter, and you say, well, the guy's going to get zapped for sure, right? Except we look at the story, and we find out of that union was born a son, Perez, who became an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ, which suggests to me that it's not about whether you and I are sinners. It's about what we do with our sin. It's about our attitude to our sin. It's about us coming to the point where we're ready to say, like Judas says, yeah, I blew it. I blew it just like Ham did. Uh, I blew it just like Lot did. And that's why I have to throw myself at the mercy seat of God and say, oh, God, save me, because I am uh, a sinner. One, one last comment before we move on. Any heroes from Judah's family that we read about in the book of Joshua, you know, somebody that you can say, now there's a kid who gets it, a kid in the family tree who's, you know, he's, He's marching on, doing the kind of thing that I think maybe he might have learned from his, uh, his ancestors. Well, the outstanding descendant of Judah in this book is Caleb. Remember our very last message I preached from this book was about Caleb. Literally, the word means all heart. And we saw how Caleb was the one at 85 years old who was ready to march uphill. Uh, and he was going to take the ancient city, Hebron, where all the patriarchs and most of their wives were buried, the place where Abraham had met God face to face, the most holy city in Israel at that point. At 85 years old, he's going to go uphill. Uh, and that city, as we noted, became the heart of satanic activity. The giants had claimed that as their center place. Caleb, all hearts, going to go up uphill and he's going to claim that city for God. That's a, a true descendant of Judah. Having said that, let's go on to the next clan. Uh, the, the, the next ones to inherit their property are the sons of Joseph, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And given my theme that God isn't doing what we would expect as he is giving the property, he doesn't even do what we expect with these two uh, sons of Joseph. You know which one was the oldest son? Manasseh. You read chapter 18. Uh, the book of Joshua reminds us that Manasseh was the oldest son. You know which one we read about first in the book of Joshua? Ephraim. So the birth order is even reversed here. And you say, well, God, what are you doing? Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis, when Jacob was blessing the sons of Joseph, he put his right hand on Ephraim first and the left hand. I got the, Yeah, this is left, isn't it? It's been too long. The left hand on Manasseh. Jacob wanted to switch the hands and, and uh, or, I mean, uh, Joseph wanted to switch the hands. And Jacob said, no, I got it right. I'm going to put the greatest blessing on the younger, younger son. And that's still the case here. So God is blessing whom he chooses to bless and this passage of scripture. Joseph was the dreamer. He had a dream. He had a dream that he could be used to help his family. And as you look at the Genesis story, how was that dream fulfilled? Well, it was fulfilled. He held on to that dream for years and years through a pit in a prison. And because he believed that dream was from God, God fulfilled the dream for Joseph. Well, these great, great grandsons had a dream too. We read about their dream in Joshua chapter 17, 
you skip down to uh, verse 14 of chapter 17, the book of Joshua, 224 in your pew Bible. The people of Joseph, that is where these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, said to Joshua, Why have you given only one a lot and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. You know, you say, well, so far so good. You know, they're uh, acknowledging God has blessed us. We're a numerous people. And uh, can we get that uh, slide up of the allotment of the tribes? I know it's it's later down on the outline. Uh, I wanted to show you how large a territory uh, they already had. You know, there's... Uh, there's Manasseh there, there's Ephraim down below, and then the other side, there's Manasseh, and there's the rest of the tribes. You can look at this and say, already, they had way more property than anybody else. But they're coming, we've got a dream, we want more. We want more property than uh, what we uh, currently have. So we go on to the text, we see what happens with this then. Verse 15, if you're so numerous, Joshua answered, if the country of Ephraim is too small for you, Go up into the forest and clear the land for yourselves there in the land of the Parasites and the Raphaites. These were the giants, the, the people uh, that are the Raphaites. The people of Joseph replied, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots. And those in Beth Shen and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. And so, you know, you're telling us we can have this, but do you, have you looked at the Canaanites lately? They've got iron chariots and they're giants in the land is basically what they're saying. Verse 17. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You'll not only have one allotment, but the forest hill country as well. Clear it. And its farthest limits will be yours. You notice these will be statements. They will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots and though they are strong, you can drive them out. You say, go, Joshua. But in Paul Harvey fashion, we need to ask ourselves, well, what's the rest of the story? Well, the rest of the story is in what we see in the remaining portion of Joshua, what you're going to see throughout the book of Judges, they did not, they could not, they would not drive out the ites. Joshua says you can. They said we can't. Joshua says don't worry about the iron chariots. They did worry about the iron chariots. And the sad commentary on Ephraim and Manasseh, though they had a dream for more property, for more of the promise, because of their refusal to do what God said, they never realized the dream. Never realized the dream. Now, in the midst of that, there is an amazing story. It's easy to skip by. Found in Joshua chapter 17, 3 through 6, about some other descendants of Joseph. These happen to be great-great-great-granddaughters who have a dream uh, and tradition-breaking faith. You say, what's their dream? Well, if you look at chapter 17 of uh, Joshua, uh, there are five daughters uh, who have no brother. Uh, Manasseh had one son, Machir. That one son had one son, Gilead. That one son had six sons. The sixth son had no son. Now, in Israel, what that meant is that sixth son isn't going to receive, or I mean his descendants aren't going to receive any property because there's no son to receive them. Um, I, I don't know how many of you watch Jane Austen movies, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, or Emma and all this sort of stuff. All the girls in my family, you, you pray for them. You know, they, they're addicted to this stuff. We, we've gone to Jane Austen's home 
uh, in England and done the tour of Jane Austen's home. Uh, anytime you come over to a house, Pride and Prejudice is likely uh, to be uh, playing on TV. I, I've seen that more than it's proper uh, for an adult male to be watching uh, Pride and Prejudice. And if you're not familiar with Jane Austen's work, uh, she's writing about a condition in England in the latter 1700s uh, when females in England were not allowed to inherit anything significant, certainly not property. Well, that was the same case in ancient Israel. It's tradition-breaking to think that a woman can inherit property. But here we have these five women who say, we want to claim the promise of God. If Ephraim and Manasseh don't want it, we want it. But it's not what tradition would call for. So what happens? Back in Numbers 27, we see that these five women, this is now after they've wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, Uh, Moses is still alive at this point. They haven't entered into the promised land. These five women come to Moses and they say, Moses, we know this is tradition breaking. We know that legally we have no reason to say we can have this, but we want the promise too. Is there anything you can do? Well, and nothing Moses can do because traditions are tradition. The only thing Moses can do is go before the Lord because this is going to violate every tradition of inheritance that is in any kind of a book. So Moses goes before the Lord and he inquires the Lord, Lord, what should I do? We've got these, you know, these upstart women, these, you know, five daughters. They want the promise. And what am I supposed to do with these girls? And in Numbers 27, God says, give them the property. You mean it, Lord? Yeah, give them the property. And in fact, make this a rule in Israel. From this point on, because these five girls have come forward, if there ever is an occasion uh, when a, a father only has girls the property can pass on through the girls. So these five girls are pace setters. So now we're flash forward to the book of Joshua, and here we are. These same five girls are now coming to Joshua. It's time to disperse the land. This is now before. I mean, Judah's got their property. Ephraim and Manasseh are in the process of getting their property. don't even really have it yet, and none of the rest of the tribes have gotten anything. So these five girls are stepping forward and making sure, don't you forget about us. So they come to Joshua and they say, Joshua, you were there when Moses made this promise. You were there when he inquired of the Lord. We want the property that was promised to us. Now, the amazing thing, as you look at this, you find out that the section of Manasseh that's on the west side of the Jordan is uh, what they're going to claim. They're six sons uh, of uh, Gilead. So if you were to divide this uh, area of Manasseh into sections, how many sections would you have? Well, I'd have six because there were six. There were six brothers. Well, the six didn't have a, a, a son, but you know, if these daughters are going to get something, they get that sixth portion that belonged to their father. You read the book of Joshua and you find out it's not what happens. It's divided into ten portions because these five young women that come and say, we want the promise of God, every single one of them get an equal portion to their other five uncles. You see what's happening here? You want to say, God, you can't do that. That's not fair to all the cousins, all the other nieces and nephews of these five uncles. You got five, you know, five nieces here uh, that are getting way more than all the cousins. God, you can't do that, can you? Well, God is, I think, establishing something that has bothered the church and certainly bothered the world for years. If you have checked lately... You're not as smart as everybody else 
uh, around you. Uh, you're not as strong as, uh, as everybody else. There's always somebody who's got more gifts or different gifts than you and I. We don't all get the gifts. Now we can say, now the way we kind of like to have things, we like it so that every of us get you know, equal portions, equal, equal, equal. You, know, you, get, you get equal intelligence and equal property and equal everything. I mean, that would be fair, wouldn't it? Except God gives his gifts to whomever he gives his gifts, and we should be thankful for the gifts that God has given us, not worry about the gifts that other people have. It's not according to the court of law. It's according to what God does as he shows his favor. And God shows his favor differently. I think that's one comment we can make uh, about this. I've struggled with this. I want to say, God, this isn't right. How am I going to preach this stuff? Because this isn't fair that these five nieces should be able to get more than all their cousins. But that's what happens. Now, I've made another observation as I'm trying to figure out what in the world is God doing here? Uh, And the observation is right off my theme verse. You've got the rest of Ephraim and Manasseh and the rest of the tribes sitting on their hands. They've got the promise of God. And Joshua's got to come and say, get going, get going. God is giving you the promise to go claim it. Now, in the midst of that, we've got five girls who are saying, hey, we want the promise. We want to claim what is ours. And could it be that God looks at hearts like that and say, boy, I like that. I like it when people are ready to stand on the promise and when everybody else is fiddling around and they're being lax and hesitant, they're not stepping forward. I like it when people say, I'm going to take my God at his word and I'm going to claim the promises that he gives to me. Now, whether this is the right application or not, in thinking about this, I've been so encouraged as I think of some young women in our church I, I could name lots of young uh, women in this church that have been a tremendous encouragement to me, uh, but this morning I think of two. One is Carissa Arsvold. Uh, Carissa was the star in the elementary children's Christmas program a couple uh, weeks ago. She stand up here and she had her white dress on and she was, you know, bouncing around. And, and the reason I appreciate Carissa is not just because she's a, a wonderful actress, but it's her heart for Jesus. Uh, because she wanted to make a difference for Jesus Christ. Uh, this last year, she's prayed for, for kids at school. Uh, she introduced one of her friends to the Lord Jesus Christ this last year. And I know it's her determination to live her life in such a way that as she goes to school, she wants to make a difference for Jesus Christ. Not that honors Jesus, as I see it. Ma- Maddie Young is the other one that has been such an encouragement uh, to me. Maddie is the daughter of John and Wendy Young. Maddie regularly, uh, as a young girl in this church, uh, submits prayer requests to the elders and the pastoral staff. Her prayer request this last week is this year at school, my prayer is that God make me more like Jesus Christ. that warm your heart? You look at that and you say, if claiming the promises of God is a matter of being diligent, if it's a matter of saying, I don't want to leave those presents under the tree, I want to claim them, you think God's going to reward the kind of heart that says, here am I, God, I want your promises. I want to make a difference for you. I believe there's a lesson for us uh, from the family of Joseph about dreaming dreams and trusting uh, that if you dream your dreams on the basis of who God is and what God is going to do, God is going to see you experience some wonderful things in your family. Who are the notable descendants of Joshua? Or excuse me, not Joshua. I already gave it away, didn't I? The notable descendants of uh, Joseph? Well, these uh, five great-great-great-granddaughters 
And Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. We find about that uh, later in the book. Kind of an encouragement if you're, if you're Joseph up in heaven looking down at your family tree. Last comments I want to make about the rest of the tribes. And you say, well, aren't there seven more, George? Yeah, there are. Uh, I want to make some summary comments because what I can say about one of them is kind of like what's true about all of them. Uh, two tribes I want to say a little bit about. One is the tribe of Simeon. And we get to this last section where now we're casting lots. Uh, lots are being cast, and, you know, who gets first? Well, Benjamin, you know, the other brother of Joseph from the favorite wife, he's the first one. And then the next one is Simeon. Now, again, you look at this and you say, I thought this was supposed to be about territories and division of land and tribes getting particular sections. I thought that's what this is supposed to be about. So reading this, I'm expecting that the tribe of Simeon is going to have their marked-out territory. And if you look at the text... They don't get any marked out territory. Uh, In fact, they find according to this text that the territory for the tribe of Simeon is the territory of the tribe of Judah. You say, well, wait a minute. Well, whose territory is it? It's Judah's territory. Uh, Simeon never gets any territory. Simeon only gets a few scattered cities in the territory of Judah. And you say, what is God doing I mean, he's dividing all this property. You mean to say Simeon doesn't get a territory? That's right. The tribe of Simeon does not get a territory. They get a bunch of cities. And again, you know, if you're a thinking person, you say, well, God, what in the world are you doing? Why is this? As we look for an explanation, you turn back to Genesis chapter 49 and verses 5 through 7. God was having some difficulty with Simeon. What we find in the text is that Simeon couldn't control his anger. And apparently it was over an extended period of time. Simeon couldn't get a handle on his anger. And so as the blessings are being meted out uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, and the discussion of Simeon comes up, God says this, Simeon, because you could not control your anger, you will be dispersed in the promised land. You will not have a terror to yourself. So already, I don't know what you conclude from that, but apparently there are consequences to sin that can impact your children. I, I don't know what else to say. It sure looks like that's the the conclusion to me because Simeon sinned, couldn't get control of his anger, wasn't living his life the way God wanted to live his life, obviously over an extended period of time. And guess what, Simeon? All the other 11 tribes will have territory. You're not going to have any. You can look at that and say, well, maybe holiness matters then, huh? Uh, Maybe being diligent in applying moral excellence and knowledge, like Peter says, maybe maybe there's something to that stuff because it certainly has impact uh, for Simeon. The other tribe I want to say a couple things about is Dan, the tribe of Dan. Dan is the last tribe. They're not, Dan's not necessarily the youngest, but they're the last. And in the sovereignty of God, you say, well, if God already is doing some favoritism sorts of things and he's rewarding those who are faithful and encouraging those who are ready to step out in faith, why would, in the providence of, of God, Dan be listed last? Well, that's where Dan deserves to be, given the level of the faith of Dan. You say, well, George, where do you get that? Well, in the text, we find out that the territory assigned to Dan, and if we can have our uh, map again. Whoops. uh, Well, we'll get the map here uh, shortly. Uh, In the map of the tribes, there it is. Uh, We we see the tribe of Judah. There's there's Dan's territory right there. That's the territory they assigned. That's the promised land for Dan. Uh, As we come to the New Testament, however, we find Dan's up here. And they say... Wait a minute. If Dan is, the promised land is here, how in the world do we get up here? And, of course, maybe you've heard the, the statement from 
Dan to Beersheba, Dan to, uh, to Beersheba. Uh, the reason for that is, you know, by the time of the New Testament, anybody connected with Dan is way north. And you say, well, how do they get way north when they're supposed to be right down by Judah? Well, in order to find that out, we've got to go to the book of Judges and say, what in the world happened? Well, in the book of Judges, in chapter 17, uh, we find out that every man was doing what was right in their own eyes. That is to say, there's no commitment to moral excellence, no commitment to the things of God, no commitment to holiness. Let's just do our own thing and, and hope it's going to work out all right. There was this man, Micah, who stole money from his mother. She put a curse on the thief. He heard her put the curse on the thief. And they took curses seriously, apparently, in Micah's day. So he came back to his mom and said, Mom, I was the thief. And she said, Good boy, I'm glad you returned the money. And I tell you what I'm going to do, Micah, and these are supposed to be believers now. Uh, I am going to uh, take this gold that you stole, and I'm going to turn it into an idol. And you say, an idol? You know, people who worship Yahweh, that's, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make an idol. So then Micah had this idol, and he said, well, now, great, i got an idol. Uh, I'd like to have a priest. So he consecrates one of his own sons. He was an Ephraimite. And you say, were Ephraimites priests? No, that would be Levites. So he consecrates a son of his as a priest. And then as you look at the conclusion of chapter 17, you find out a Levite comes passing through town. He's not supposed to be passing through town. They have Levitical cities where these Levites are supposed to do ministry. So this Levite is all the will of God as he's wandering around. He comes to where Micah is, and Micah says, Oh, Levite, cool. How about you stay and be my personal priest? The Levite, violating the will of God, says, Sure. And then chapter 17 concludes with Micah saying, Oh, fantastic because now god is going to bless me because i got a levite as a priest he actually says that he's been totally ignoring the will of god throughout and he's saying i've got a levite as a priest. i know god's going to bless me chapter 18 tribe of dan enters tribe of dan comes they come to the home of micah they see micah's got a priest who's a levite cool he's got his own idols you know that that he that he has there we would like those so the tribe of dan goes in mass to the north they steal the Levitical priest and the idols, and they go sit, settle in the town that they now renamed Dan. That's how the tribe of Dan got to the north. Totally ignoring God's leading, God's direction, God's plan, thinking, oh, you can live your wife life any old way you want, and God's got to bless you. Principle of Scripture. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. I was reading a variety of books on my way over uh, to uh, uh, Germany. Uh, Joan was reading one by Nancy DeMoss on, uh, on holiness. I kept peeking over what she was doing, intrigued, and finally got my hands on the, on the book uh, uh, and started reading it. Holiness is kind of a topic, you know, for 100 years ago in some ways. You know, it's what my grandparents talked about in the Free Methodist Church. You know, it was holiness and being pure, and somehow that seemed kind of uh, ancient uh, sort of theme. Uh, but as I was reading Nancy DeMoss's book, uh, she's got a section where she gives seven reasons why holiness matters. And God took this like a dagger to my heart and made me realize we need to talk about holiness a whole lot more around here because it does matter. Let me just, I'm going to conclude with this. Seven reasons why holiness matters. Well, first, because God commands it. Book of Leviticus, and in Peter, he says, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's expecting us to be holy. Holiness is being set apart. That's what it means. The verb kavash, set apart. You can cut across an apple, set it over here. Now that apple is holy. It's set apart. It's being different because of God in your life. That's what holiness is. Second reason why we should be holy. 
because God's holiness is the stated goal for every believer. Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world, I predetermined that my people should be holy and blameless before me. That's God's will for your life. You want to know the will of God for you for 2006 is be holy. That's God's will for you. Third reason why holiness should matter. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins. Uh, he was uh, the, the bridegroom who came and gave his life uh, for the bride. And he died so that we can be set free from sins and we can be holy. Reason number four. Because we're saints. You look at any of the epistles. What are we called? We're called saints. The holy ones. The sanctified ones. The set apart ones. That is who we are. And if we want to claim who we are in Christ, we are to be holy. Fifth reason, because intimacy with God depends upon it. And this is the one I personally found convicting. You know, in this church, we say we want to experience God. We want to experience Jesus. I uh, also had a chance to read some books on postmodernism. Robert Weber's got a, fun, a funded foundational book on uh, younger evangelicals uh, talking about postmodernism. He teaches at Wheaton, for those of you who don't know the name. Uh, and he's making the claim that as you look at young people, you know, the 20-somethings, they want to experience God. Get us into the story. We don't need all the proofs and evidence and all this kind of stuff. Just get us into the story. Let the Holy Spirit of God convict us and show us what's real. And that's where people are today. And what's real is a life that is holy before God. That's what's real. Uh, but in, in this text, in, uh, in Matthew, what does Jesus say? Who is it that will see God? The pure in heart will see God. You want to experience God? You want Jesus in your life? Uh, you want to somehow get into the story in such a way that you can say, I met Jesus in the story. Well, be pure in heart, because that's what Jesus says is foundational for your experiencing him. Sixth reason why we should be holy. We're destined to live in the holy city. Read the book of Revelation. Holy Jerusalem, holy city, set apart for us. Uh, Holy heavens, you're going to be in a holy place one day. Um, the extent to which you are holy today, holy heaven is going to be a lot more comfortable uh, for you. That's where we're headed. And then the seventh reason that she offers is because the well-being of our children and others in our lives depend upon our personal holiness. You can look at Deuteronomy 12:28. That's the verse that she uh, she gives. But we don't have to even go beyond what we saw. Uh, in our study in Joshua. Simeon couldn't get a hold of his anger. It impacted his kids. You find Ephraim and Manasseh. They don't drive out the, uh, the, uh, the Canaanites. They had iron chariots and woe was us. We can't do it. They could not. They would not. They did not. And it impacts their children. We live in a day and age where we want to say, I can do whatever I want to do and it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, we're kidding ourselves if we think that. Our commitment to personal holiness is the way to see God it's a way to experience the promises of God. It's the best way to assure ourselves that our children have a chance to experience the promises of God. Turn with me to Second Peter, and, and we're done. I just want to, this is where we started. I want you to see uh, the, the text here. I hope this motivates you as you think about the promises of God for you this next year and prepares us as we get ready to take uh, the Lord's Supper as well. Second Peter. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. This is 1,204 in your pew Bible. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by, the, by his own glory and goodness. 
Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises. They had promises. We have promises. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. You get to be holy like God is holy. And escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Holiness is what's at stake. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, 2006 looms large. And if we were to ask ourselves, uh, what do you want of me this next year? You've already told us. You want us to be holy. You want us to be set apart. You want us to claim the promises that you give us throughout your word. The promise that you're never going to leave us comfortless, but you've sent the Holy Spirit of God to be with us, to guide us and instruct us. The promise that uh, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We're counting on that as we receive the elements of the Lord's Supper now. The promise that if we are weak and heavy laden, that we can come to you and you will give us rest. Father, we confess that so often like the people of Israel, we've got these promises all around us, but we leave them like Christmas gifts under the tree because uh, we're not prepared to do it your way. We, we want to just assume that no matter how we live, no matter what we do, that we're going to experience the promises of God. And we can see today that's not how it works. Father, as we enter into the worship of the Lord's Supper, we come to you like Judah, saying, Lord Jesus, we have sinned. We have fallen short. If it's up to us in our own efforts, what we have accomplished by ourselves, we are all, every one of us, lost. Father, accept our brokenness. Accept our confession of sin. And then refresh us with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, God, give us a dream, a dream that is built upon your promises, a dream like Joseph, a dream like these five great-great-granddaughters, a dream that motivates us to be people who make a difference in our community, people like Carissa and, and Maggie. And, Father, make us holy, for we know that's your will for us. We pray in Jesus' name. As we practice the worship of the Lord's Supper, we believe that the Lord's table is open to every one of us. You don't have to be a member of our church uh, to join us uh, in the Lord's Supper. And so uh, as we distribute the elements, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, do join with us. This is a time for us, too, uh, to give praise to Jesus for what he has done. So as you know that apart from your own brokenness, you've got nothing, you can rejoice in the grace of Jesus uh, that is yours. I'll ask our servers to come forward as we receive the elements.